Wow, that was a that was a powerful experience. Beautiful music. Goodness. This is a, a full day of church this morning. But the essential part of our gathering today that will be etched in the memories of these six families is the celebration of the life and the promising future of their little children. The blessing of a child, as Robin said, is a long and joyful tradition experienced yet once again this morning. And for these parents to gather with this community of people, this family here known as the Fourth Avenue Church of Christ, this church that stands in solidarity and their love for them and their children is a blessing that's beyond words. The Fourth Avenue Church of Christ blessing you with words and song and scripture and prayer. Our love for our children is expressed early when we think and pray and reflect and finally come up with just the right name. For it's by our name that we are acknowledged as a unique human being. So it will be for Adelaide and Brooke and Owen, Brett, Aria and Adley. And may the qualities of the Christian faith, most notably faith, hope, and love, and grace, and forgiveness be associated with their names and become the very qualities that define them as human beings. And then one day may they bestow upon the world the love that they have been loved. Blessed are the little ones, blessed beyond telling, to be born to parents that love each other and love them. And one day may they come to understand, as we all have, that our life is but a breath, and our family and our friends and even our church belong to us only through the grace of God. It's been an honor to be part of this ceremony this morning. Good morning to the Fourth Avenue Church of Christ in frigid but beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. You'll be receiving regular systematic helpful updates from the lead minister search committee, also known as the discernment committee. And, as Keith noted, Nancy is the chair, and if our early meetings and, and her early work is any indication uh, of the quality of her leadership, which I believe it is, I commend the shepherds for their wisdom in selecting Nancy, which is to say that we are off to a good start. In a crowded Kroger's grocery store, Checking out with a cart full of groceries, waiting amongst a horde of other shoppers, my fellow shoppers, all of us waiting in line to check out, a single line with a single clerk checking people out. Some are standing there with their arms holding a few groceries. Others have their little baskets with a few items in them. Some have their mini carts with groceries, and I stand with my fellow shoppers waiting to check out with my jumbo cart full of a week's 
worth of food, when much to my surprise, a woman approaches me. She has gray hair and it's braided beyond, behind her head and she's wearing her Kroger outfit with her Kroger tag and she is beckoning me like this. And I look at her and I say, who? Me? Really? And she takes the front of my cart and now she is leading my cart, pulling my cart and leading me to the checkout line that she is opening for me at the front of the line, among the dozens of shoppers waiting, she selected me to be the first in line and she pulls my cart and I follow politely and quietly and I look straight ahead. I look at her back and the braided gray hair and I dare not turn back to look behind me to see the my fellow shoppers that I have left behind in that single long line. I do not look behind me because I do not want to see the reactions on their faces, the frowns and the scowls, their looks of contrast, the look that says, I've been waiting longer than him. I have fewer groceries than he does. I deserve to go ahead of him. I imagine they're thinking those thoughts because I have had those thoughts myself. For on the way to the Kroger's, heavy traffic slowing down the cars, we're inching forward on our highway, several vehicles lined up in an adjacent parking lot, cars lined up there, pickups and cars and even one semi, waiting to enter into our lane of traffic without the benefit of a traffic light. To get into the lane of traffic, these cars are waiting in line. And then the car in front of me breaks to wave in one driver. I toot my horn to no avail. She lets in the second car in the lane. And now I honk honk nicely, but if, as if to say, lady, enough. Move it. But she does not hear me. And now, to my horror, she waves in the semi. I wait in the traffic, experiencing her grace to others. And of course I rationalize. I deserve to be moving down the road. I've been in line here longer than these Johnny-come-latelys who don't have a traffic light for good reason because they need to wait for us to pass. I need to move on and get to the Kroger's, where I will receive the sweet grace of the clerk who will take me to the front of the line. That's my Kroger story. <laughs> our sermon this morning, as did last week's, will fit into a larger theme for our time together. In the weeks ahead, a general theme that will revolve around what matters most and so on this second Sunday morning in 2021 at the 4th Avenue Church of Christ in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee, our sermon is entitled, The Trouble with Grace. Jesus told this story. A man had two sons, and the younger son says to his father, give me 
the share of the inheritance that falls to me. And so the father divides his wealth between the two sons, and not many late days later, the younger son heads off to a far country where he squanders his estate in loose living. And once he's spent everything, a severe famine ravages the countryside. And so the now destitute son hires himself out to a Gentile farmer who sends him out to the field to feed the pigs. Longing to eat the pig's slop, no one is giving him anything. And so he comes to himself and he says, Why, my father's hired workers have more than enough bread, and here I am dying of starvation. Hmm. Here's what I'll do. I'll go back to my father and I'll say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Why, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of the hired men. And so he heads back to his father. But while he's still a long way off, his father sees him. And his father feels compassion. And he runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him. And the son starts in, Father... I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Why, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can finish his speech, the father says to the staff, Quick, bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and bring out the fatted calf. Let's eat and celebrate because my son, we thought he was dead, but he's alive. He was lost, but we found him. And they had a big party. Meanwhile, the older son is out in the field. And when he approaches the house, you know, he can hear the music. He can hear the dancing. And so he summons one of the workers, and he begins to ask questions. Worker says, oh! He says, your father, your brother has come and your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But the older son, he becomes angry. He refuses to go into the party. And so the father, he comes outside and he starts pleading with his older son. He says, come in. But the older son protests. He says, look. He says, I've been serving you for years. Have I ever once neglected a single request you've made? No. Have you ever once thrown a party for me and my friends? No. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you prepare the fatted calf for him? Father says, son, you've always been with me, and all that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to throw a party. Your brother, why, we thought he was dead, but he's alive. He was lost, and we found him. Huh. The trouble with grace 
That's the title of our sermon. A sermon that begins with the Kroger reality of our experiences, but is rooted in the biblical text I've just rehearsed. The biblical text is Luke 15, and unlike the instructions last week with Proverbs 15, I encourage you, if you have your text, to open it up and take a look. You'll want to consult it, I think. It's a dangerous place, Luke 15. It's a dangerous place for me to go because we all of us have already owned that text. And it's not the same text that we heard just now. It isn't how it usually works in our heads. Because there is already formed in our mind a very clear story, creatively designed story of this biblical tale where we in our own minds have invented a place that operates separate and apart from Luke's world. In our story, there's a father who is clearly God and a wayward son or daughter, and that's you and me. There's no older brother in our story to cloud things up. There's home and there's a party brewing for <laughs> you and me. There's a far country and a pig pen, but it grows more distant with every passing year. Now, in the foreground, the father is running towards us. And as he runs toward us, we bow our heads in shame and close our eyes while we close one eye. And we keep another eye open so that we can see the gifts that he's bearing. There's a robe, there's sandals, and a ring. Oh, we're grateful for these welcome gifts, knowing that we do not deserve them, that we are not worthy. And now the Father embraces us, and we put our head on his shoulder, and he puts his head on our shoulder, and we both cry. He cries tears of joy, and we cry tears of relief. And when we recreate this story, where we are playing the role of the younger brother, the part of the story that we enjoy the most is when the preacher tells us about the gifts. The best robe, the preacher assures us, means the robe of finest quality, highest value. Your father seems intent on showing grace to you. The Father's robe will assure the whole community of your acceptance. You are the guest of honor. The ring, likely a signet ring representing authority. Shoes, a symbol of freedom. Slaves go barefoot. And the fatted calf, oh, how rare it is for such a celebration. This is a special occasion. The Father's love has, seems to have no limits. And the kiss, tell us about the kiss, a sign of reconciliation. I should mention how unusual it is for an older man to run in this society. Your father, your father, he has compassion on you, and his actions are without restraint. And in your mind, you've already performed the translations. God has provided you with a new suit of clothes, tailor-made, that fill your closet and spill across your bed. And in the driveway, in the driveway sits your brand new Jaguar, 7 Series, oval grill, forest green. Open the door. Go on. Open the door of your new Jaguar. Put your nose inside. Take a whiff. Oh, I love the smell of a new Jaguar. 
Oh, and the dinner, the party, will begin with an appetizer of French soup, rich roasted onion stock, and sherry wine topped with rye croutons and melted Swiss and Parmesan cheese. For the main course, sautéed beef tenderloin tips served on a bed of rice pilaf topped with a buttered European dark sauce. Oh, go, go on, my stomach's beginning to growl. And the party, oh, the party has all the people you've known, even the ones you had a tough time with. I'm talking about your aunts and your uncles and your old friends. They're all there to greet you. Good to have you back. Welcome home. Good to see you. Pat, pat, pat. Hug, hug, hug. Oh, what a party it is. It's so satisfying. And that's how the tale that we have created from this text generally runs. Maybe we should put a caption on the beginning of this film that we star in and that we have directed. The caption should read, based on a true story because our story doesn't seem to mesh with the context of the story that Jesus tells and Luke records in the 15th chapter of Luke. It's quite a remodeling job we've done, very creative, but the design of the parable was quite sound and functional and creative before we ever picked it up and moved it off its foundation. And you know what they say, one not me ought not mess with a classic. The parable itself has a frame. The story that I rehearsed at the beginning of this sermon has a setting. It's part of a larger collection of stories that Luke has brought together. The parable is grouped with two other parables, a lost coin and a lost sheep which have certain themes in common and also share the introduction. And I now will read the introduction to the parable in Luke 15, verses 1 to 3. Here's what Luke says. The tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him, which caused the religious leaders to grumble. The religious leaders said, this man receives and eats with sinners. And in response, Luke says, Jesus told them these parables. The occasion of our story of the lost son and the elder brother is the story of the religious leaders' criticism of Jesus' association with sinners he eats and drinks with outcasts. Luke even uses an odd word. He says he receives them, which may mean that he even hosts these sinners, not former sinners, not past tax collectors, but sinners and tax collectors, which of course riles the older brother, I mean the religious leaders. It is this conflict that gives rise to the telling of the three parables lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. They seem to have a lot in common. The end of the lost coin parable goes like this. Jesus says, there is more joy in heaven over one who repents. That's how it is with the lost coin. With the lost sheep, Jesus concludes by saying, for there is more joy in heaven over one who repents. And then, of course, the lost son, where Jesus does not say, 
there's more joy in heaven over one who repents. The repentance, stay with me now, that follows the lost sheep and the lost son is not mentioned with the law. I mean, that follows the lost sheep and the lost coin is not mentioned with the lost son. It's not there when the younger brother returns. The conclusion to the finding the lost sheep and the lost coin is absent when the son comes home. You may be struggling with this. I know this is not easy to hear. You can say, well, Flair, you know, you've got uh, 30 minutes according to the, the program, but let's not go that long. But you could talk all day if you want to, and you're not going to change my mind. My repentance and my story happens in the pig pen in verse 17. I came to my senses in the pig pen. But that's not what Luke says. Luke, of course, didn't have television voiceover. He didn't have film video. He didn't even have a cartoonist bubbles where he could tell us what the, what the character's thinking. The only way for Luke to get us, the listener, inside the character's head is for him to have an interior monologue, what Shakespeare would later call a soliloquy. Shakespeare would have later, would have the character go off to the side of the screw stage and, and, you know, Hamlet and tell the audience what he's thinking. But Luke has a particular phrase that he uses over and over and over again in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, volume one and volume two. And the phrase is this, he came to himself and he said, and when that phrase occurs in Luke's Gospel and in the book of Acts, that's telling us this is what the character is thinking. It's a simple narrative device familiar to Luke's work. Literally, this soliloquy begins with, he came to himself, and he said, it's what Luke uses in, the, in, in Luke 15, verse 17. And he uses the term elsewhere. Do you remember the story of the rich fool that Luke, only Luke tells? It's a man who makes money hand over fist. What's he going to do with all that money he makes? Luke says he decides in this fashion. He came to himself and he said, what am I going to do with all this money? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. I'll invest that money in me. Did he repent? Uh, no. Remember the story of the crafty steward that only Luke tells? What did that guy do? Something illegal. Malfeasance of funds, misappropriation of finances, something evil. And he got caught red-handed. What's he going to do in that fix? Luke says he decides in this way. He came to himself and he said, what am I going to do? Why, I'm too weak to work. I'm too proud to beg. I know what I'll do. And the crafty steward, we find out, does nothing close to repent. Do you remember the story of the unjust judge that only Luke tells? Widow woman pestering that judge for help, about to wear him out. What's he going to do? Luke says he decides in this fashion. He came to himself and, and he said, what am I going to do? Lest that woman wear me out. And did that judge repent? No. Luke says, and Jesus repeat, repeats, he did not fear God or humankind. Rich fool, crafty steward, unjust judge, came to himself and he said, repent? No. It's just a way for us to get into the head of that character. So the younger son, he's out in a far country, famine in the land. He's hungry. He's longing to feed himself with the pig's pods. What's he going to do? Luke says he decides in this fashion. He came to himself and he said, what am I going to do? Why, my father's workers have it better than this. A soliloquy. 
revealing nothing more than his moment of crisis and what he's thinking. He's saying it so that we can hear. Let's be honest, we don't like this. The younger son, it seems, has a questionable, if at all, valid repentance. And we have a lot at stake. We've been looking at this text all of our lives with a different point of view, not the point of view of the older brother. But think for a minute, be honest with yourself. Haven't you wondered about that young boy? Somebody in Sunday school class said, you know, it seems to me that kid's just being led by his stomach. Somebody else said, seems to me that he's just run out of options. That's right. This hungry, optionless son has just arrived home with scant evidence that he's repented. You have a lot at stake, and I know how resilient you are to this. One time I preached a sermon on the older brother. Sermon went like this, older brother, older brother, older brother. <laughs> sermon ended. Elder got up to commend the sermon, supposedly make a comment. He said, no, thank you, David. I know we can all relate to that younger brother. <laughs> oh, no, man, that was the opposite I was trying to say. So another time in another place, I really poured it on. I got up and I put my Bible down and I put my notes on the stand and then I shoved it to the side and I leaned forward and I spoke to the congregation. I says, this morning, I'm not going with my manuscript. I'm going to go. I'm going to speak from my heart. Ooh, they all leaned in. I said, we've got sin in the community, sin in the camp. I said, right in my neighborhood, for example, we've got a woman kid, really. She's only like 18 years old. Oh, she's been involved in all manner of evil. And I mentioned all the sins that this person committed. And I said, and then, about six months ago, she heads off for Chicago. No, no rehab, no repentance. But she comes home on Friday, and you know what they did? They threw a big party for her. Oh, I said, they had balloons out front saying, welcome home, Lisa. Oh, barbecue. In the backyard, the, the aroma wafting over into our yard. Oh, it's just disgusting. Oh, the whole neighborhood turned out for it. I was invited. May and I, we were invited. But would we go? Of course not. And then, knock came on the door. I opened it up, and there's Lisa's mother. I said, come on in. Lisa's mother said, David, Lisa, she says, we thought she was dead, but she's alive. She was lost, but we found her. Won't you come to the party? And I said, oh, I don't know. Oh, I said, oh, I don't know. And then I went on to that hypothetical tale, and I preached the sermon. And when the sermon was over, a neighbor had actually come to our church that morning. He had <laughs> and he caught me out in the foyer. And he said, uh, Dave, I drove by your house this morning. I didn't know what, what was the house that had the balloons out in front. Oh, man. He said, you don't, you don't know good preaching when you hear it. <laughs> On Tuesday, I got a call from a woman who's in our Bible study. Her name's Judy. And Judy says, oh, David, she said, after church, four of us got into a little argument. Two of us said, oh, I think he went to the barbecue. And two of us said, oh, I'm sure he didn't go to the barbecue. Would you settle the argument? And I said, Judy, I said, I just made that up. She said, ah! She said, what else are you lying about up there in the pulpit? <laughs> and the next Sunday arrived, and just before services, I was standing next to the woman that I typically stand next to. She's about 85 years old. And she turns to me, and she says, so how was the barbecue? <laughs> and for the benefit of us both, I just said, it was very nice. <laughs> 
I'd never try that on you. I'd like instead to take you into your younger brother's room where he has his new tailored clothes all laid out over there on the dresser. You see that yellow receipt? Go ahead. Take a look. See how much, mother, how much money your father has spent on your brother. Now, let's walk into the kitchen. The caterers are all dressed up so handsome and pretty. Mario, he's in charge of the banquet. Mario, tell my friend here how much money this feast cost. And Mario looks at you and he says, your father is a very generous man. Now, let's walk out into the driveway. You see that 7th Series Jaguar? Oval grill, green exterior, green leather interior. Go ahead. Open the door. Stick your nose inside. And you say, that smell makes me nauseous. Job asked, why do bad things happen to good people? And the older brother asks, why do good things happen to bad people? And what about me? We've long resisted this story. It's not that we're illiterate, we're not. It's that we are so uncomfortable with the story's structure and the story's meaning. Visiting preacher was invited to church one Sunday, and he, when his invitation came, he said, well, when I'm there, where will you be in the Bible class? And would you like me to teach? I said, sure, if you'd like. Why, the Sunday you're here, the class will be on the prodigal son. So the Sunday came, and he began the class with this tale. He said, once a man had two sons, and the younger son came to his father and asked him for his share of the inheritance. And so he gave it to him, and he went off to a far country where he squandered the money on loose living and engaged in shady business. And one day, the father went out to the older son, who, as usual, was busy working for his father in the field. And the father said to that older boy, he said, son, you have always been faithful to me. You've never neglected a single command of mine. I think it is high time that you invite every friend you've got and I throw a big party. I've got sandals, I've got my robe, and I've got a special ring for you. And when he got that far, a woman in the audience, in a whisper that was meant to be overheard, said, that's how it should have happened. Young man works for his family-owned towing company. He and his dad have spent their lives on the business. I asked the son, I say, you an only child. He says, no, I got a brother out in California. He's an artist or a musician or something. I say, you work long hours. He says, I'm on call every other day. I put in 70 to 80 hours of work, of work a week. I work when I'm well. I work when I'm sick. I say, you happy? He says, yeah, for the most part. Except dad says he's going to retire this Summer, he's going to split the profits that he saved from the business. He's going to divide it equally between me and my brother. And he says, that doesn't seem fair. And then there's a woman that I would especially like you to meet this morning. 
She's in her late 50s, but she could pass for far older. She's aged quite a bit in the last several months. She says, I have four siblings who are scattered across the country. And when mother took ill two years ago, we didn't want to put her in a nursing home, so she came to live with me. Oh, my brothers and sisters didn't come by much after that. I got no financial help from them to speak of. I had to quit my job to care for mother, which was fine. But when she passed away last week, they all flew in for the funeral. But what I couldn't believe was what I heard in my living room the day after the funeral. The will, mother's will, her last request was, I divide my estate among my children equally because I loved you all equally. And she says, now, that doesn't seem fair. They come to us. They come to us from all sides. Distant. Relatives. Artists out in California. And of course we resist going into the celebration party. We question a lot of things. We question their integrity. We question their commitment. We question their status. We question their, their repentance. Yeah. So there we are, out in the driveway. We're leaning against our car. It's not a Jaguar. And we're debating whether we are going to drive away or go in. We've got our keys in our hand. We look up at the house, hear that music blaring, hear the laughter and the dancing and the joy coming from inside. And out walks our father. He comes up and he stands next to us. He leans against the car next to us. And he puts his arm around our shoulder. He says, son, I want you to come in. You know, your brother, we thought he was dead, but he's alive. He was lost, but we found him. You look down, you look down at your keys, you look over at the house, and then you look up at your father, you look him in the eyes. Will you go in? Will you go in? I think you will. I think you will based on this one condition. And the condition is this. You know that you have been saved by grace. You know that, don't you? Yeah, yeah. You'll go in.